We are beginning a new sermon series, as has been alluded to, the Gospel of Matthew, that we will be walking through uh, beginning this morning. Uh, Matthew's Gospel has been called the doorway or the gateway to the New Testament. And it makes sense, right? When you flip the page from your Old Testament, you enter into the New Testament through the Gospel of Matthew as the first book there in the New Testament. Matthew probably wrote this gospel for a church about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, probably before the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in AD 70. And the purpose of Matthew's writing for the church seems to be to fuel the mission to all nations, to fuel the mission to all nations by unfolding the history of Jesus' establishment of the heavenly kingdom on earth through his life, ministry, teaching, death, and resurrection in fulfillment of Old Testament expectation. That's the purpose of the gospel of Matthew for us as Christians as we read this together. We will meet the author... Matthew, the hated tax collector, a bit later. He's a character in the story, but just a minor character. As you may know, if you've read through the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels, it has some distinctives, some things that are unique to the Gospel of Matthew that you don't find in the other three Gospels. One of those is the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew uses this phrase 32 times, and nowhere else in the New Testament do we find that phrase, the kingdom of heaven. It is distinctive to his book, And it seems to be a major emphasis, a major theme that goes through the whole book. Jesus is establishing the kingdom of heaven as he comes into this world and begins ministering to people and then dying for sin and then rising from the dead. He's establishing the kingdom of heaven. But what does that mean? We'll dig into that more when we come to it in the Gospel of Matthew. We won't have long to wait But essentially, it seems like Jesus is speaking of a heavenly kingdom. That's why he uses this distinctive phrase to focus on its quality. The type of kingdom he is bringing is not an earthly kingdom. It's not a kingdom that has earthly borders on a map. It's not a kingdom that has a governmental structure. It's not a kingdom that can be uh, beaten or defeated by an opposing army. In fact, it has no army, at least in the traditional sense. So this heavenly kingdom is now coming to the earth, and Jesus is bringing it as the great king himself. So as we go through the gateway of the New Testament, Matthew is going to root the story of Jesus to the story of the Old Testament. He is the centerpiece. Jesus is the centerpiece and the culmination of all of Scripture. We will not understand Jesus And we will not understand the Gospel of Matthew if we do not take into account the Old Testament backdrop. And Matthew draws our attention to it very specifically and precisely many, many times. Matthew begins his Gospel with a genealogy, a list of names, a list of relationships. This morning I want to show you why this is an incredibly wondrous way to begin a story. I want to show you how Matthew's original audience, at least, would have been excited to read this genealogy. And I'm praying that the Spirit will help all of us recapture the wonder of this genealogy, and maybe of reading all biblical genealogies, particularly the one that has to do with our Savior. 
This story doesn't begin with once upon a time in the land of make-believe. This story is rooted in factual, actual history. This is the truest of all stories. So follow along as we read Matthew 1, 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hetzron, and Hetzron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shaaltiel, and Shaaltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Atzor, and Atzor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So what we have here is not simply a list of names or a list of relationships. This is the royal genealogy of Jesus. The royal genealogy of Jesus. And it's framed for us in verse 1 and in verse 17 in such a way that we get the point if we focus in on those two verses, if nothing else. But in, the, in verse 1, it begins giving us a clue that we are at a new beginning in the story. This isn't just the next chapter from the Old Testament. This is a new beginning. The first phrase of Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy, could be more literally translated, the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis or the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah, the book of the origin of Jesus the Messiah. This exact phrase, the book of the genealogy, the book of Genesis, appears twice in, well, guess, the book of Genesis. Genesis 2-4, this is the generations of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 5-1, these are the generations of Adam. And so it's heading up not just this genealogy, but the story that Matthew is telling. And it's a new beginning It's a new genesis. 
And when we start with a new Genesis, we should expect a new creation. Because that's what happened in the old Genesis, the original Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so it is here that the Gospel of Matthew is telling us a new creation is beginning right here with Jesus the Messiah. He is bringing in a new world, a new creation. And that's what his gospel is about, bringing in a new beginning. But the focal points of this genealogy have to do with David and Abraham. He tells us that in the rest of verse 1. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now notice that's out of chronological order, right? Abraham came first, David came later, which he will in the genealogy itself. But at the heading here, at the title of his gospel, Matthew emphasizes David. He brings him to the front he says, Jesus is connected tightly to David. And that becomes the major feature of this genealogy. Matthew is wanting to tie Jesus to David very, very closely to show that he is indeed a new David. He is the fulfillment of everything that was promised to David, in fact. In fact, as we press on in this, what we see when we see the son of David and see the son of Abraham is that this is not just a history of names. This is not just a list of names or a list of relationships. This is a history of the promises of God, the promises of God. And so what we see is that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the heir of the promises. He is the recipient of the promises, particularly the promises to Abraham and the promise to David. He is the one who fulfills those promises. He is the one who brings those promises to fulfillment for God's people. It all comes in and through him and him alone. That's Matthew's point here. And so I want to remind you of those promises because that's the backdrop to this story. As we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see how Jesus brings those promises to fulfillment. And so the promises begin to Abraham. God appeared to this pagan, this Babylonian, Abram, from Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis chapter 12. And God made promises to him. Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. God said to him, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now those three promises, essentially, the promise of blessing, the promise of greatness, and the promise of blessing for all the nations gets expanded in the book of Genesis. God appears to Abraham, after he changes his name, multiple times and reiterates those promises and also extends them. In certain ways. If we move forward in the story to Genesis 17, 6, God shows up to Abraham and tells him, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations, plural, and kings shall come from you. So now Abraham is able to see that the promise to him didn't only have to do with the creation of a single nation, but multiple nations under his name, under his line. And not only that, but royalty will come from him. Abram has no royal blood. He is not in a line of kings, but God starts one with him. Abram, you will have kings who come from your body. 
We move forward in the story into Genesis 22, and the promise is again reiterated after Abraham has the son of the promise, the one who will begin the fulfillment of the greatness of the nation. You've got to have one baby before you can have lots of them. And so he has Isaac, and God commands him to take Isaac up a mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham does take him up to the top of the mountain, and God intervenes and spares Isaac to continue the promise there. And in that moment, through the angel, God says to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, and in your offspring, this guy Isaac right here, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so again, the climactic promise of the Abrahamic covenant is not about Abraham. It's not about his descendants. It's about blessing for the whole world. It's about blessing for all nations. That's the climax of the Abrahamic covenant. And Matthew is telling us that it's happening in Jesus. He's bringing the blessing for all nations right here, right now. But the promise continues specifically through David as well. And so we move into 2 Samuel 7, when God appeared to David, spoke to the prophet Nathan, and gave him a message to then deliver to David. And I'll read bits and pieces of 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16, focusing in on the promises that God makes to David here. He says to Nathan, who will relay the message to David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That promise of eternal kingship is coming to fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. And Matthew is shaking, he's putting up all the flashing neon lights here in this genealogy to connect us back to David and these promises. Now, when you read through 2 Samuel 7, it seems like at first he's talking about Solomon. When we read the story on through 1 Kings, it seems like Solomon is going to be the guy. Solomon is going to be the son who will sit on the throne, who will build a house for God's name. And indeed, he does build a grand physical temple. And he does indeed commit iniquity. And God does indeed judge him and bring discipline into his life. But... That's not the whole of the story. The promise goes beyond Solomon to one who will build a greater temple than Solomon. And it has nothing to do with brick and mortar. It has to do with an eternal kingship and a temple made of people. 
That's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that's beginning to come to pass in Jesus. And Matthew is calling our attention to it right here at the very beginning of his gospel. And it's Jesus' kingdom. It's Jesus' throne that is established forever. It is the Davidic kingdom as it always was designed to be. And so Jesus is the son of David par excellence. We could go to the Apostle Paul and we could see where Paul summarizes this really, really simply in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ and nowhere else. If God has made promises to his people, the way they come to pass is in Jesus. Nowhere else, no way else. And Matthew is drawing our attention to that through his genealogy. Now, as we look at this genealogy, we recognize from verse 17 at the end that it's got a structure. Matthew's not just listing names, happenstance. He is purposeful. He's structured this in three sets of 14 generations. And we we recognize the generational breakdown with Abraham and with David, but then the third division is unexpected. It is the deportation to Babylon. Why the emphasis on the Babylonian deportation? Why is that important to remember at this point, at the beginning of the new beginning, that is the new creation that Jesus is establishing in His kingdom? Why? The three divisions have to do, again, with the story, the history of God's promises coming to fulfillment. With Abraham, God grants promises to this particular family for the sake of all nations. With David, God grants a king and a line of kings or a dynasty that will bring those promises to fulfillment. But with the deportation to Babylon, God removes the king. God removes the dynasty. He ends the line of kings at the exile, which calls into question the fulfillment of God's promises. What are we going to do if there's no king? What are we going to do if the people are not in the land? How will God fulfill His promises? And if we look at the details of the genealogy and just glance up for just a moment to verse 11 and remember good King Josiah. Good King Josiah is mentioned in this genealogy as the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And we remember good King Josiah, he led some kind of quote-unquote revival, but that was just one generation before the deportation to Babylon. I guess the revival didn't last long or have much of a lasting impact. The word translated deportation here in the ESV is very, very specific. It's not the usual word for the whole period of the exile, but rather the initial event of being deported, sent into Babylon. The New King James Version of verse 12 makes this clear with its paraphrase, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel. Thus, Shaaltiel was born in exile, during the exile in Babylon. This also means that the whole last section of the genealogy all occurred during the exile. The last 14 generations are after the deportation, during the exile. Thus, the Messiah was born during the exile, even though he was born in the land of Israel. 
You see, for Matthew, the deportation represents the failure of Jewish kingship, the seeming end of the Davidic line. Even though the Jewish people have physically returned to the land of Israel, they are still in exile. Exile represents alienation from God. Exile represents the judgment of God. And the prophetic promises of restoration need to be seen as a packaged deal that featured far more than geography. Matthew's genealogy points to Jesus as the one who would lead the people in exile to their true home. He would restore the kingship. He would provide the forgiveness of sins. He would establish the new covenant. He would send the Holy Spirit to live in His people. He would gather His people from all the nations in grand fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. Israel's exile was emblematic. It was a picture of the exile of humanity. The land of Canaan was described as though it were a new Garden of Eden. And when the Jewish people were exiled from the land, it was because of their rebellion against God. The fall of Israel echoes the fall of humanity. And while God's judgment in both cases involved geographical displacement, the judgment was more about alienation from God, alienation from covenant relationship with the one true God. And so when we see this genealogy, we are beginning a story that has to do with the end of the exile and the fulfillment of the promises of God to bring restoration for his people. That's what we're up to here. But to see the point of the actual genealogy and not just the the headlines that will get teased out later in the gospel, we need to look at the oddities, the strange things, the unexpected names in the list that's given to us here. The oddities actually shape the message. Why is this genealogy here? Well, some of the unexpected things actually tell us why it's here and fits in with the larger purposes of Matthew as he writes the story down. First, we notice in verse 6 and 16, toward the beginning and toward the end of the genealogy, two people are given a title, and only two people. David is called, in verse 6, the king. And it goes on down to Jesus, who is called Christ. David the king, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Christ is just a reflection of the Greek word Christos, which is a reflection of the Hebrew word Mashiach which is the Messiah, the one who has been anointed, the anointed one par excellence. And it goes back to understanding who and what kind of people were anointed in the Old Testament. Prophets were anointed, occasionally at least. Priests were always anointed, and kings were always anointed. And when we put David the king next to Jesus the anointed one, we see the emphasis there on Jesus' kingship, that he is anointed to be the promised king, the anointed king. He also fulfills those other two roles too, by the way. He's the uh, anointed prophet who speaks God's word perfectly and completely and all the time. And he is God's anointed priest who mediates between God and man and offers the one sacrifice that can really bring forgiveness of our sins forever. But Matthew's emphasis here is on the kingly element. David the king, Jesus the Messiah. They're the only two who get titles in the genealogy. The second oddity that we see is the one that's most often focused on. There are interesting characters in this genealogy. Women, who are not usually listed in genealogies. Gentiles, in the genealogy of the Jewish Messiah. Now, that's odd. 
heroes and villains, guys that we would lift up as good examples and others that we would certainly not. They're all in here. Let's consider the significance of those names. When we recognize there are women in the list, we might think, well, shouldn't there be some other women that got, some, got a mention here? There's no mention here of Sarah. There's no mention of Rebecca or Leah or Rachel, the matriarchs of the patriarchs, if you will. Instead, we have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, mentioned by name, and then Bathsheba, mentioned very indirectly. Why? Let's start with righteous Tamar. Righteous Tamar. You can go home and read her story again in Genesis 38. She was a Canaanite from Timnah, which is the same city where Samson famously gets his Philistine wife much, much later in history. Tamar married one of Judah's three sons. God killed her first husband because of his wickedness. God killed her second husband, Judah's second son, because he refused to conceive a baby with her. And then Judah refused to allow her to marry his third son, which may imply that his third son was just as wicked as the other two. And Judah feared that he may face the same fate. Later, in Genesis 49.10, we learn that Judah is to be the tribe of the rightful king. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute shall come to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Judah's line, the messianic line, was threatened to die out right here at this point because of his own unrighteousness. But then Tamar took the initiative, tricked Judah into sleeping with her, and they conceived twin boys. It was Judah's responsibility to ensure that his line continued. And it was Judah's responsibility to direct his son to marry Tamar, to provide offspring for her older brother. When Tamar was discovered to be pregnant, Judah was ready to cast the first stone shall we say. or Literally, he was going to burn her alive. But once she demonstrated that Judah was the father, he said in Genesis 38, 26, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. When unrighteousness, the unrighteousness of a patriarch, threatened the fulfillment of God's promises, God used righteous Tamar, to save the Messianic line, and to ensure the fulfillment of His promises. So that's righteous Tamar. Next we find faithful Rahab. Faithful Rahab. Her story is in Joshua chapter 2. She was a Canaanite prostitute of Jericho who heard about the God of Israel, believed everything she heard about Him, and then took the initiative to hide two Israelite men who came into Jericho as spies preparing for the destruction of her city. She could have turned them in and brought the morale of the Israelite army all the way down in a flash, threatening God's promise of the land of Canaan. Her faithfulness contrasts with the faithlessness of the wilderness generation of Israelites. Her confession of faith in Joshua 2, 9-11 in part says, I know that Yahweh has given you the land 
For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Her mention in Hebrews 11 is not without good reason. In Hebrews 11.31 we read, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. When enemies threatened the fulfillment of God's promises, God used faithful Rahab, believing Rahab, to ensure that His promises would be fulfilled. So that's faithful Rahab. Third, we come to loyal Ruth. Loyal Ruth. She's the Moabite whose marriage to Naomi's son was ended in tragedy. Death thus threatened the continuation of the Messianic line. But Ruth extends loyal love, chesed, covenant faithfulness to Naomi, embraces the God of Israel as her own, and pursues Boaz in such a way that he happily steps in to redeem the whole situation. Her loyal love contrasts with the treacherous idolatry of Israel in the period of the judges. The genealogy that concludes the book of Ruth is included in the genealogy that opens Matthew's gospel. When death threatened the fulfillment of God's promises in the period of the judges, God used loyal Ruth to ensure that His promises would be fulfilled. Loyal Ruth. Finally, we come to a woman who's not named in the genealogy. She is a victimized, anonymous wife. She's not really anonymous to us. We know who she is. Her name is Bathsheba. Her story is in 2 Samuel 11. She was an Israelite woman who married a Hittite. But this Hittite, Uriah, was one of David's mighty men. A Gentile, loyal to David, and presumably loyal to David's God. The genealogy of 1 Chronicles 3 names her without mentioning Uriah, though there she's called Bathsheba. Whereas here in Matthew, Uriah is named and Bathsheba or Bathsheba is not named. Incidentally, Bathsheba is also the name of Judah's Canaanite wife, according to 1 Chronicles 2.3. By not mentioning Bathsheba's name directly, Matthew accomplishes at least three things for his readers. Number one, he draws attention to yet another Gentile, Uriah. Secondly, by doing this, he recalls David's guilt. And therefore, number three, he highlights the need for a better king than David. But with the other women mentioned, their personal story plays a pivotal role in the grand story of God fulfilling His promises. Does the drama of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah, the Hittite, have something for Matthew's readers to pick up on here as well? With Bathsheba, David repeats the fall, the original sin in the Garden of Eden. When David saw that Bathsheba was beautiful or good, he took her and he consumed her. Just as Eve saw the fruit that the fruit of the forbidden tree was beautiful, good, and she took it and she ate it. He used his power, his position, 
to put Bathsheba in an impossible situation. It is said in King, 1 Kings 15.5 that the reason Yahweh kept on preserving the kingship of Judah, even though they did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh repeatedly, they kept walking in sin and they failed to remain true to Yahweh, faithful to Yahweh, was because David did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. When you read that, it's rather jarring to return to 2 Samuel 12 and reread the prophet Nathan's words to David. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? David's sin so often resulted in suffering for other people. Bathsheba, the immediate victim of his great sin, just imagine her personal suffering. The king, this king, who compelled her to sleep with him, would carry the shame of that night as she sought to keep it a secret. Once she discovered her pregnancy, can you imagine her panic as she realizes the secret can no longer be kept? And everyone would have known that her husband Uriah had been away in battle for a long time. Then shortly after discovering her pregnancy, she will receive news that her husband was killed in battle. How deep must have been her grief. King David swooped in to marry her, but it wasn't long before the prophet Nathan arrived to confront David with his sin and to announce God's judgment. David's murder of Uriah results in murder and hostility among David's children. Strife will characterize the rest of David's life, and the son of Bathsheba will die. The widow loses an infant son. In Matthew 1.6, we read the words, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and a whole sordid affair should come to mind. The chosen king of Israel, the one who received the royal promise, has lied, murdered, committed adultery, and thereby despised God's word. Thus, the line of kingship was once again threatened, this time by the sin of the king himself. How can God overcome this obstacle to the fulfillment of the promises? Well, you know the story. God mercifully extended forgiveness to David, who was repentant, who did repent, and God mercifully forgave him. But there's more to the story than that. As with the other women, Matthew mentions, God uses the initiative of the wife of Uriah who became the wife of David. First, God grants David and Bathsheba conception. The genealogy of 1 Chronicles 3 tells us that David and Bathsheba conceived four sons, Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. It's unclear whether this is their birth order. If it is, then Shemaiah is the son who died. I wonder if their third son, Nathan, was named after the prophet Nathan in honor of his helpful involvement in their 
life. This third son also appears in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, interestingly enough. But in any case, in 2 Samuel 12, 24, we read, Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and Yahweh loved him. Now, maybe the author has telescoped the story so that they conceived two other sons before Solomon. Or maybe the genealogy in Chronicles is not in birth order. Either way, the point is, God gave them Solomon. But Solomon is not next in line for the kingship, however you cut it. And one of David's other sons, Adonijah, had proclaimed himself king as David was getting old and near death. Nathan the prophet advises Bathsheba to remind old King David that he had sworn that Solomon would succeed him on the throne. We're not told when David made this oath, but she takes the initiative to convince the king to name Solomon as his successor. So when the sin of the chosen king himself threatened the fulfillment of God's promises, God used the victim of that king's sin to ensure that his promises would be fulfilled. Is there anything God can't do? Is there anyone God can't use? The genealogy of Jesus includes the names of surprising individuals. The king of the Jews descends from Gentiles. Women who normally would not be listed in genealogies at all are mentioned, but they're women God used in surprising but pivotal ways to overcome serious threats to the fulfillment of God's promises. Murderers, liars, thieves, adulterers, idolaters, kings who sacrifice their own children to foreign gods, prostitutes, fiends, victims and victimizers, abusers and abused. These are the forebears of Jesus the Messiah. Should it surprise us that the same kinds of people will show up as followers of Jesus in this gospel? Likewise, It's those kinds of people Jesus came to save. But I'm getting ahead of myself. One more oddity in the genealogy needs to be observed. It's in verse 16. Joseph is referred to not in connection with Jesus, but as the husband of Mary. Joseph, husband of Mary. Look at verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born. The whom there is feminine and goes directly back to Mary. Matthew has written this very carefully to show that Jesus has no bloodline, physical, biological connection to Joseph. Joseph is not his father. He does not say what you see throughout this genealogy 39 times, like, a, uh, like the beating of a drum through the genealogy. So-and-so was the father of, was the father of. Literally, it's a verb. The King James has begot. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. We could say it in modern English as fathered, fathered, or sired, also older English. Abraham fathered Isaac, but Joseph did not father Jesus. He did not beget Jesus. And Matthew has worded this very carefully so that there's no confusion on that point. But that creates a problem. If he's not a biological son of Joseph, 
How can he be the royal son of David? Tune in next time. (laughs) Matthew will solve the dilemma that he's created by his wording here in the next paragraph to show Joseph's adoption of Jesus. But we'll get to that next time. Another detail to notice in verse 16. Again, 39 times running through this genealogy from verse 2 all the way down to verse 16. You read the word fathered. That's an active verb. The last piece of whom Jesus was born. In Greek, this is the same verb that's been used 39 times already. But he flips it around to the passive voice. And I've tried to draw your attention to the passive voice and its importance in different Bible passages. This is another one of them that you could call the divine passive. So it is that Joseph was the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was fathered by God. Matthew's already hinted at the answer he's going to unpack in the next paragraph to show how God is the true father of this baby who is to be born son of Abraham, son of David. He has been fathered not by Joseph, but by God. Joseph adopts him so that he claims the Davidic royal lineage and he lays claim to the throne through all of this. But we'll get to that next time. The emphasis here is on this lineage that comes down to Jesus ultimately. Even though he inherited no genes from his adoptive father, as one writer puts it, he surely inherits the line, the lineage of King David, and thus he meets that qualification to serve as the king of the Jews. So as we conclude, we should reflect on the point that when we see this list of names and remember who some of these people were, we can see very clearly that Jesus has come to save sinners. That's the mission. That's the mission. How does Jesus, the royal Messiah, bring the Abrahamic blessing to all nations? By saving sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 is where that verbiage comes from, particularly. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, King Jesus, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Don't read that line as an objective statement that Paul was saying he's the worst sinner who ever lived and he knows it. Read that as a subjective statement and recognize what Paul is saying there is that when he looks at his own life, he knows his own sin better than he knows the sin of anybody else. And he is saying that for a, an example, as a model to you and me, we should all claim 1 Timothy 1, 15 as our own. Because I know my sin better than I know any of yours. And you know your sin better than you know anybody else's. And that makes you, in your own eyes, the chief of sinners. And it makes me, in my own eyes, the chief of sinners. And you know why that's really good news to embrace that? Because Jesus came to save sinners. Even the worst of us. So embrace it. Own it. And if you don't know that to be true of yourselves, then humble yourselves and see yourselves more rightly in the light of God's Word. You are the chief of sinners. And Jesus came to save you.
Matthew, Jesus will say these, this kind of thing in his own words in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 9, 13. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came. As we come to the end of this genealogy and we see the emphasis on exile, Jesus came to save sinners, and that is the true end of exile for the Jews and for humanity. Jesus came to bring the exile to its true and proper end. Not just the Babylonian exile of the Jews, yes that, but more, the human exile of all nations. Matthew's gospel concludes with the famous and familiar Great Commission. The blessing for all nations promised to Abraham is coming to fulfillment as Jesus' disciples make disciples of all nations. Your family history isn't an unbreakable barrier to receiving God's gift of salvation. Your own sin isn't an unbreakable barrier to receiving God's gift of salvation. Like Rahab the prostitute, believe what you have heard about this God. Believe that He sent His Son, Jesus, to live righteously in your place, to die sacrificially in your place, and to rise from the dead victorious over all your enemies, over all that would hold you back from trusting Him and receiving His gift of salvation. Like Ruth, abandon your gods. Abandon your desire to make much of yourself. Abandon your longing for human approval. Abandon your love of money or status. As Jesus will say in a parable in Matthew 13, when you see Jesus and His kingdom as the most valuable treasure in the universe, the pearl of greatest value, let go of all your earthly treasures so that you might take hold of that which is truly life. As Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ, the Messiah, died for us. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus calls sinners to follow Him. Jesus saves sinners, setting us free from our natural slavery to Satan, ensuring that death doesn't get the last word in our lives, and enabling us to live a life of significance in service to Him. When you follow Jesus, you join His broken family. As Jesus will say in Matthew 12, 50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. If you aren't a part of this forever family, trust Jesus and get adopted. If you are, live in such a way that you are honoring your elder brother, Jesus. Heed his word, love and serve the rest of his family, and seek to draw more sinners into the family by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this genealogy. Thank you for instructing us about the family of Jesus, his natural family, his royal lineage that has so much to teach us. Help us as we find our proper place in his family to live faithfully, honoring him as our elder brother, worshiping him as our great God and Savior, and anticipating His return eagerly. We pray that You would stir us up as we study this Gospel and as we live our day-to-day lives to hold fast to His Word and His Word above all others. 
and that we would cling to the gift of salvation that you've given to us so freely to us, but so costly for you. Thank you for loving us in such a way that you paid the cost gladly to save sinners such as I. Thank you, Father, for your care for us, for adopting us into your family. We couldn't get in otherwise. So thank you for your grace. Help us to make much of it in the days to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll hold tight in your seats for just a minute, invite John McDermott.